Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Awesome. Well, we're in week three of our sermon series. It's called Build This City. Uh, you know, in Build This City, um, we are uh, examining you know, the cultures, the practices, the values, the principles of what makes the city the city. But it's also a call and an invitation for every single person to come and build God's house, the church. How many of you know that uh, the house of God was never meant to be built on the backs of a few charismatic individuals, but it was meant to be built by all people? We are the church. The church is not an event or a program we run, but the church is a community of people that are committed to his house. Amen. And so we all have a part to play. We all have a role to play in building God's house. In the first uh, installment of the series, uh, I talked about being a family. And family is not just a, a, a way to describe the service ex- uh, atmosphere, but family is a divine assignment from the Lord. We are called to build family, and it's, it's a divine assignment. Last week, I talked about worship, and the very essence of worship is sacrifice. And our worship is not meant to look like a simple song service that segues and cues up to the preacher preaching. You know, it's not an opening act. But worship is our very reason for existence. As a people, as a body of Christ, worship is why we exist. And worship doesn't just look like songs. Worship looks like sacrifice. It's the very essence of what makes worship, worship. Amen? And so we talked about those two things, of being a family and building an atmosphere of worship. And uh, today I would like to go on into our third installment. Are you ready? Yes. yes? yes. Let me just clue you in on what I'm talking about. And <clears throat> you will know why I think you're not ready. I'm going, I'm going to talk about joy today. <laughs> so I'll try it again. Are you ready? Yes. yes. We'll, we'll, we'll get there in an hour. <laughs> well, let's pray before we begin, Lord. I am. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to um, discover you in your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is not dead, it's not an archaic piece of literature, but it's alive, it's breathing, it's living, speaking to us even in this moment. And Lord, we ask that even as we open your scriptures this morning, Lord, won't you speak to us? Lord, I pray that you will speak to every individual in such a personal manner, God that they'll leave this place not impressed by the depth of my research, not impressed by uh, the quotes I bring God, but they will leave this place being impressed by a word from you. Father, I ask that people will leave here being impressed and being touched by your very spirit. Holy Spirit, we give you room, and we ask that you have your way in this place. Come and meet us. Come and encounter us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> no, I, I, I've asked this uh, question uh, before, you know, and uh, the question is this, how do you know you are saved? You know, and and, uh, and I, I post it to us as a congregation, how do you know you are saved? And, you know, some of the, the replies and the, the answers will be, oh, I know I'm saved because I prayed a certain prayer, a sinner's prayer, X amount of years ago or a certain time ago. You know, I prayed a prayer and this is how I know I'm saved. You know, we have to look at our salvation more as uh, more in relation to a marriage as opposed to a legal transaction. What do I mean by that? When I got married, you know, I did the legal thing. You know, I signed the document, I gave my vows, and I got married. 
right? Yeah. Familiar with the marriage process. Okay, I gave my vows, beautiful vows. You know, I just, <clears throat> some of you know, we're praying, Lord, send girls to, Christian girls to, am I? Um, it's okay, we'll move on. It's praying for the single guys in our church, am I? Um, <laughs> seated in a row. Um, <laughs> send revival. No. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I signed the document, I, I did my vows, right? And I got married legally, following me, yes? But I mean, you know that the quality of my marriage is not so much determined by the vows I made, but is determined by my intention to live up to the vows to which I made. Likewise, our salvation experience, this Christian life, the quality of it is not so much determined by the prayer that you prayed X amount of years ago, but it's determined by your intention to live up to that prayer to which you prayed. Am I making sense? The early, the early apostles, when they went around from city to city, town to town, and they proclaimed the gospel, they didn't proclaim it as the gospel of, hey, pray the prayer and everything will be good. They didn't, they didn't do so. You know, the, the sinner's prayer, or what we commonly understand as sinner's prayer, it only came into practice in the early 1900s. If the sinner's prayer is the only way by which you are saved, then people that lived before the 1900s are on hell right now. Am I making sense? And so they went around from city to city. They, they preached the gospel. And they called it this. They called it the gospel of the kingdom. They declared that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Now what did that phrase mean to the people in that day? The kingdom of God is at hand. It means this. It means that, hey, the king is here. The word kingdom can be translated into two uh, ways. It can be translated two ways. It can mean the king's domain where the king lives. And so the pronouncement of God's kingdom is here means that the king is present. He is here in our midst. But the, kingdom, the word kingdom can also be translated into meaning the king's dominion, the king's rulership, the way the, king's, the king runs things, the way things ought to be done, a new way of doing things. The kingdom is at hand. Christ's followers in that day would be distinguished as... Followers of the way. And this was what would what, what be commonly referred to as Christians, or they were followers of the way. And the way meant this, the way meant that they lived okay, with a different value system than that of the world. Our kingdom is such a topsy-turvy kingdom, you know, where to be great, you have to serve. The foolish confounds the wise. Jesus came as the servant king. And if we were to take a moment to examine that statement, servant king is such an oxymoronic statement. Because king meant this, king meant that everyone, all the people that surrounded you, they were about meeting your needs. And to be a servant king, it meant that you willingly exclude yourself from the privilege of being king in order to serve others. It's an oxymoronic, topsy-turvy statement. And that's the, the kingdom we are a part of. Am I making sense? Paul, in describing this kingdom that we are part of, this gospel that we receive, describes the kingdom as such in this verse. Let's put the verse up. <clears throat> Do we have that up? The kingdom of God is... Okay, let's move on. 
Paul described the kingdom as such. He says this, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Everybody say that with me. Righteousness, righteousness peace, peace, and joy, and joy in, the Holy Spirit. in the Holy Spirit. Now, it's, it's often puzzling to me when I read that statement. Because when I think that, I think of, of Paul and, um, you know, if I pose the question like, hey, describe the kingdom of God. Or describe a, a certain government, describe a certain rulership. You would go, or oh, here here's the hierarchy, here's the value systems, here's what it promises, here are the things that this kingdom wants to accomplish. And you go to, into stuff like that. But Paul, in describing the kingdom, describes it as such. It's righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy in the Holy Spirit. Today I'm going to talk to you about joy. Joy is at least one-third of the kingdom. It's at least one-third. This, this I'm more or less sure. <laughs> we spend a lot of time in church talking about righteousness. So we call people to live righteous lives. We call people to, to pursue righteousness, you know, to, to do the right things, to live holy lives. We call people to pursue peace. Peace, which is not the absence of conflict, but peace, which is the presence of Jesus. We talk about righteousness and peace a lot. But we rarely, rarely, rarely talk about joy. We're familiar with this verse, you know, in the Bible. It says this, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That to me is a oxymoric statement. It's, it's, it's a topsy-turvy statement. I'd like to demonstrate to you. Come, can, can I get uh, Shen up? Shen? Okay. I know, this doesn't look right. Andre doesn't carry weights, but Andre has weight. But, okay, carry this. Okay. That's a uh, kettlebell. I know. I, I own one. Uh, Shane, tell, tell the congregation what you do for a living. I am a naval officer. He's a naval officer. I know, underneath this is all like steel, man. He does crossfit and, and all that stuff. Can you do a, a kettlebell exercise? I don't know how those look like. But can you do one of those? No, 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 do, do one of those, like, hand, hand, hand ones. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Hey, proper form, proper form. There you go. Can you do from the bottom and then you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, do, do a snatch. Do a snatch. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Beautiful. All right, okay. So we, we, we all, uh, we can safely assume that Shen has the muscles to put this off, yes? Okay. Now I want you to try it, okay? But I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start tickling you. And I want you to try and, and lift it, okay? Are you ready? Okay, go. Okay, you can put it down, it's fine. All right, thank you, Shen. <coughs> How many of you have been to a gym before? I, yeah, I, I, I make it a, Yearly pilgrimage. Uh, <laughs> it's how I describe it. <laughs> but how many of you have like worked out with friends and you know while you're working out, you start joking, you start laughing, and the moment you start laughing, like it seems like all the strength that you had, right, just bleeds out of you and just flows out of your toes. How many of you have experienced that before? Yes, it's just like oh, it's just in impossible. It's like ah, oh, where, where did all my strength go? And when you start laughing, when you start giggling, when you start joking around, like, all of a sudden you just can't do the exercises properly. And you know, when, when I first read that, that passage of scripture, the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
it didn't make sense to me because I've always seen joy as uh, opposite. Joy and strength to me didn't, didn't correlate. But the Bible says is that the joy of the Lord is your strength. To the measure you desire to be strong is to the measure you have to embrace joy. They come together. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We all desire to be strong in God. We all desire to be strong in the face of adversities, in the face of challenges and opposition. My suggestion to you this morning is that joy has to be part of that equation. You want to be strong, you have to be joyful. It's not optional. Am I making sense? Joy is at least one-third of the kingdom of God. If you leave here, just remember that it's at least one-third. So we have to devote time to that. You know, we, we devote a bunch of time to righteousness. Right, you know, we, we are all pretty clear on that. Paul in the in prison word uh, penned his words in Philippians four. He says, "Rejoice in the Lord always." And again, I say, rejoice. "Rejoice." You know, it's it's stunning because you know, all through the Bible, there has never been a command written like that. It doesn't go, "Thou shall not murder your neighbor." And again, I say, "Thou shall not murder your neighbor." You know, it doesn't it doesn't flow well. You know. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. You know, if you were to understand a bit of uh, the culture in that day, whenever something is repeated, it is meant to draw emphasis and also to signify importance. Paul was saying that this is important. Rejoice in the Lord always, and just in case you didn't hear it, or just in case you missed this line, again I say rejoice. It's important. He's drawing significance to that. No, we love righteousness, we love peace. If someone were to get up today and, you know, if someone were to, I don't know, punch someone in the face, you know, and just, you know, or, you know, it's rude to someone or it's uh, sarcastic or, you know, it's just a, being a rude and vile person and that's not being a righteous person at all, we would probably confront the person. Yes? Yes? Right, probably. I hope so. Yeah? If a person you know, is without peace, if a person is struggling with anxiety, if a person is just you know, not together, you know, it's just not struggling with peace, you'll probably go up to a person and offer a prayer or offer some counsel. It's what we do. Yes? We will do that. But for some reason, you know, we have become accustomed or we've become callous to people walking into the church or uh, being surrounded with Christians who really have no joy in their life. We don't get to pick and choose the important aspects of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is this, righteousness, peace, and joy. All important. Joy is not an option for the believer. You know, there's this verse that says this, that I was glad, the psalmist said, I was glad when they said to me, let's go up unto the house of the Lord. I was glad. The word glad means exceedingly joyful. I was glad. When was the last time you were filled with joy on the way to church. I can tell you, I, 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 I don't wake up on the right side of the bed every morning. I skip on the left, so... <laughs> it's not a very funny joke. <laughs> I used to have a, a way of explaining my you know, bad moodiness because my bed used to be... Before I was married, it used to be flushed against the wall. So I could only get up on one side and it was always the wrong side. Anyway, when was the last time you know you're filled with such gladness, joy? You know when it when 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 it comes to the house of God. When 
were you filled with such gladness and joy? There's another scripture that says this, you know, that in his presence is fullness of joy at his right hand pleasures evermore. Fullness of joy, you know. We quote that passage often, you know, we recite it when we come to a church, but what does that mean to us as believers? How does that affect us? How does that affect the way we do things? How does it affect the way we carry ourselves? And oftentimes as believers, we are guilty of just skimming past passages like that. You know, you read it and like, oh, that's, that's a good thought. Or that's a good thing that maybe it will occur in the future. But can I challenge you this morning that when you read passages in the Bible and it seems like there is no practical application to it, sit on that passage and pursue and spend time discovering how that can be applied into your life. Don't just skim past it. Am I making sense? What does it mean to be in God's presence, in God's house, and to be filled with joy? Am I making sense? Joy we regard as optional, but the truth is the common perception of Jesus was that he was a man of no emotions. We think of Jesus sometimes as a long-haired Spock, if you watch Star Trek, without emotions. But, but catch this, you know, the pronouncement of the Messiah's coming was that of great joy. I come to you to declare good news that will be great joy for all people. The Messiah himself, you know, the Bible says that he was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now scripture says that he was anointed with the oil of gladness, with the oil of joy. Joy is of great importance in the kingdom of God and it's also fundamental to what we do here as a church. You know, one of the common questions I get as a pastor or as a person in general is, I want to discover what God's will is for my life. How many of you have ever asked that question? I want to discover God's will for my life. You know, you're talking about purpose, you're talking about like, why am I here on earth and what am I supposed to do in my life? The Bible gives us very clear instructions when it comes to the will of God. It says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Maybe, you know, let's, let's make a decision to get that will of God settled first before we pursue the other things. You know, this is a clear-cut instruction. But oftentimes we just skim past it. But my, my, my suggestion to you and my, really my exhortation to you is make a decision to pursue the will of God for your life and that includes rejoicing. Rejoice always. I'm making sense. And so this is my sermon title for today, Build This City, Serious About Joy. We are serious about joy. C.S. Lewis says this, that joy is the serious business of heaven. It's the serious business of heaven. C.S. Lewis in his writing uh, suggests to us that the main, one of the main problems we have on the earth is not an intellectual atheism, it's an affectional atheism. One of the main problems we have in the world today is not an intellectual atheism, it's an affectional atheism. What do I mean by that? It means this, it means that Oftentimes in life, we pursue other things to find joy, delight, satisfaction, apart from the Lord. And oftentimes we live lives trying to find this affectional affirmation that is void of Jesus, that is void of God. The, the biggest problem we face on the earth today, one of the biggest problems is an affectional atheism. I like to put it to you that Sin is an attempt to find joy, satisfaction, and delight in something else other than God. Every sin is an attempt to find joy, delight, satisfaction in something other than God. 
Am I making sense? So joy is, is a serious thing. It's a thing that we have to deeply consider and think about. It's the kingdom of God. It is not a personality type. Joy is not a personality type. I'm making sense. Let's look at uh, another passage of scripture from Nehemiah 8. And this is where we get that, that lovely verse, you know, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And so I'd like to give you a bit of backstory. You know, the builders were building you know, the walls of Jerusalem and after many generations, they finally found the, 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 the scriptures, the word of God. And this is the first time the people in that day were hearing the word of God. And this was their reaction, their response to the hearing of God's word. So the verse goes, So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And then Himael, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat. Beautiful. How many of you want to plaster this verse up on your kitchen? Eat the fat. Drink the sweet. Ugh. And send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So let, let me just break down that verse. Okay? They begin to read from the book of the law. Okay? The law being the requirements, the law being the standards of God. And when the people heard that, they were filled with such grief, such sorrow. They were like, my life doesn't match up to that. I'm not right. I'm not holy. I'm not righteous. And they begin to grieve and they begin to weep and mourn. Then an instruction was given to the people, hey, do not mourn or weep for this day is holy. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet. Celebrate. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always grown up being persuaded that holiness looks like a furrowed brow. It looks like tears. It looks like a bit of frowning. It looks like sadness. It looks like being somber. It looks like being quiet. It looks like feeling very sorry for yourself. But the, the, this passage of scripture seems to suggest that holiness actually takes a different form. It looks like being filled with great joy. And I don't know about you, but maybe you know you have grown up in the uh, under the persuasion that the house of God, the things of God, are meant to be somber in nature, mourning and weeping. Sad, really. But this house, the church, the presence of God is meant to be filled with such joy, gladness, happiness, and celebration. Am I making sense? Come on, are you with me? Eat the fat. Drink the sweet. Here's my suggestion to you. We get to be holy and happy. Right. We get to be holy and happy. Think about it, you know, like sometimes in worship, you know, you, we all have different styles in worship. But one of the things that has often intrigued me is that for most believers, I would say 95% of believers, you know, you can stand up in front and just take a gander later, but most believers, when they worship God, it's just all frowny and like, oh... Oh, yes, Jesus, I'm happy to be in the house of God. Feel such gladness. And, and the truth is, we, we don't approach God with such a confidence, you know, to be joyful and to be glad. Here's, here's, here's what I want to propose to you. I think it takes more faith 
to rejoice, then it takes faith to feel sorry for yourself. It takes more faith to rejoice, knowing that, that hey, you don't have some things in order in life. Then it takes faith for you to feel sorry and bad. It takes more faith to rejoice. That making sense? Get to be holy and happy. That's the church, you know, we get to be holy and happy. You know, there's this story uh, of the church I was part of in the U.S. where uh, a, a group of students were on their way to church. They were laughing, giggling, and just having a grand old time. And they were walking up to church. And they walked past uh, a man on the street. He was a drug addict, and he was homeless. He had nowhere to go, but he was just uh, living a life, a life full of drugs. And as he watched the students walk past him, he was like, my gosh, they look high. <laughs> they look like they're on drugs. And he began to follow them because he was like, I want to I wanna get on what they're getting. You know? And I was like, man, that, that looks like some good stuff. And so he just followed them you know, for a good five, ten minutes. And lo and behold, he ended up in church. <laughs> and so he ended up in church. And then the preacher gave a message. He felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to respond. And he went up and he gave his life to Jesus. Beautiful. Um, and when the, the counselor asked him, he was like, hey, you know, so what brought you to church? And why, why are you in church? He said this. Oh, I just followed the happy people. I just followed the happy people, and, and here I am. You know, I'm in church. My question to you is that, is this. Are you filled with such gladness, joy, and laughter in your approach to the house of God, in your approach to this gathering, in your approach to the presence of God, that it would cause the people around you to desire, to long for that same joy? Joy is not a personality type. I'm making sense. You're all familiar with this passage. It says that unless you are like a child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Adults, us, laugh an estimate of 17 times a day. Children, on the other hand, laugh an estimate of 300 times a day. <laughs> unless you're like a child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. I think laughter, I think joy, I think celebration is a part of becoming childlike. What does that mean to you and I? It means that you know, we are on purpose, structure, fun, joy, laughter, celebration into our life. That means you don't just watch documentaries. Put on a comedy show, I mean, every now and then, a comedy film. Appropriate ones, of course. You know, I've, always made, I've made a ton of mistakes as a leader in, in my day. Watch a bunch of wrong movies and go, oh, no. And then you repent and you move on, you know. Joy, laughter, celebration, fun is a core value in this church. It is not just a byproduct of certain personality types getting together. It's not just uh, a laid-back service atmosphere that you're trying to achieve. It's a core value here. Because here's the thing. Our role as a church, our role as a body of Christ is to reflect and represent our Father in heaven. And our Father is one who is delighted with his children. Happy, joyful, and it's our responsibility to express and to represent that reality on the earth. So joy, laughter, fun, it's a core value in this house. Basically, we, 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 we say jokes and you ought to laugh when jokes are given. You know, I was, I was traveling with a um, with, um, speaker and uh, we were in this church once and um, this church had a, a prophetic uh, seer, you know, he could see in the spirit. And we spent some time with him and uh, was just uh, 
you know, learning from his wisdom. And we were just asking him different questions about what he sees in the spirit realm. I know some of this will be really challenging with your theology and your understanding, but just humor me for, for a moment. And so we were just talking to him about, like, you know, what he sees in the spirit. And, um, uh, you know, the, the preacher I was traveling with, uh, what he does with her uh, uh, at the start of every service, if it's a new place, he would share jokes. He would share a bunch of jokes, and people would laugh at, at the jokes. And uh, the CEO was just sharing with us that every time the preacher gets up and shares jokes and people start laughing in the room, he said that in the spirit they saw demons fleeing from the lives of people when they begin to laugh and when they begin to celebrate and have joy in their lives. What am I saying? If you don't laugh at my jokes, you're bound. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. But joy and laughter, you know, it brings deliverance. You know, the Bible says that a merry heart, laughter is like good medicine. It's good for the soul. Am I making sense? You have to take it seriously as a core value. <laughs> Amen. I want, to ch- I want to challenge us uh, to do something uh, before I move on. Okay, everyone put on a white smile. Okay, white, white as you can, like you're getting married. White, I, ah, white as you can. Or imagine, imagine that you're getting married. <laughs> white smile, okay, just hold it, hold it, hold it. Okay, you feel the strain? Like smile until you feel the strain. Like, feel it, feel it, okay. Okay, relax. The longest record for a smile is 10 hours and 5 minutes. I'm just surprised the person has a face after that. But <laughs> 10 hours and 5 minutes, the person smiled non-stop, non-stop. A smile is temporal, right? There's no way you can hold a smile for, forever, right? Here's what I want to suggest to you. Happiness is temporal, but joy is eternal. Joy may often look like happiness, but... Joy doesn't always equate to happiness. Am I making sense? We think of joy oftentimes as a feeling or as an emotion, but it's not always happiness or feeling. It doesn't always equate to that. When the Bible refers to joy, it does not mean the tendency that some people have because of their temperament to be happier than other people. For one reason or another, there appears to be people who are more naturally wired to smile, who can wake up in the morning singing a cheery song, and who look at their breakfast cereal and simply clap their hands with delight. Those people, God bless them. On Sunday morning, if you're in my house, you know, you would uh, realize that me and Amy we have this system going where we can get ready for church you know, and get all the stuff in order and do what we need to do without talking to each other. It's just beautiful. It's just like silence, but it's just like, you know, it's, it's almost like a dance. It's, it's beautiful. And when we get out of the house, we're like, good morning. <laughs> you know, and that's the first words we, we, we say to each other once we get out of the house. And it's beautiful. Uh, we're both not morning persons, you know, and it's, it's just the, the way we're wired. No, by, by that definition, no, I'm just not a joyful person to <laughs> at the start of the day. But I'd like to propose to you that joy is not a, a feeling you entertain. It's a state of being. State of being, you know. Uh, let's look at this verse in Philippians 4. I shared on this verse before, but I'm going to just going to read it quickly. And this is Paul saying, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at your last, at last you care for me. 
has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Sketch that. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is saying that contentment is not a byproduct of favorable circumstance or it's a disposition that you're born with. It's a skill set that you acquire. And the word content is interesting. It literally translates to a stateful of peace, uh, to a state of peaceful happiness, to a state of peaceful happiness, which I believe is joy. Joy is not then a byproduct of favorable circumstance or a disposition you are born with. Rather, it's a state of being. That making sense. Let's look at now passage of scripture from Hebrews twelve. You are familiar with this as well. It says this: looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Many times we look at this scripture and we think that the writer of Hebrews is suggesting that there was a joy at the end of the tunnel. It was a joy that was in the future. After Jesus endured the cross, there was a joy that was set before him. That is not what the passage of scripture is saying. Think about it. When you go to McDonald's and you have your Big Mac before you, it looks like that. For the joy that was before him, he endured the cross. The word that's used there, okay, for the joy that was set before, means to be present, to be established, to be rooted. For the joy, and in, in, in some translations, abiding. For the joy that was set before him. Present, established, abiding, he endured the cross. Joy then is the means, or it's the state of being that allowed the Lord to endure the cross. It's not the feeling or emotion, it's the state of being. You're making sense? Joy doesn't look so much like a feeling, rather it's implied that it's a state of being. While happiness is defined by external circumstances, joy is a cultivated internal reality. What is that joy that gives Christ the strength to endure the cross? What is that joy that Paul says sustains him in suffering, pain, and hardship? What is that joy that God desires for us to experience the fullness of? My suggestion to you is that fullness of joy doesn't look like a constant state of ecstasy, euphoria, or bliss. But it's a cultivated internal world, internal reality. I would like to redefine and define joy for you this morning as we move on. Are you with me? Let's look at a passage, Romans 15, verse 13. I know I'm covering a lot of ground, but follow me. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I'd like to spend some time talking about hope. The word hope is really interesting. You know, we know it commonly in the English language as something that pertains to wishful thinking. You know, I hope things pan out. I hope this works out. It's rooted in a certain measure of uncertainty. But the biblical word for hope uh, is completely different. It means the confident, joyful expectation of good. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I believe this, okay, that joy and hope are two sides to the same coin. I approach it in this manner. Hope is the belief system and joy is the expression of that belief system. Am I making sense? 
I'd like to give you a definition of joy that I've, I've really come to love and uh, embrace in my life. And it's from an author named Kay Warren, Rick Warren's wife. And let's have that, that quote up. It goes like this. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in all things. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control. Now I'd love for you to catch this. The biblical command to joy is not a call to stimulate emotions. It is a call to live in a perpetual state of hope. Say it again. The biblical command to joy is not a call to stimulate emotions. It is a call to live in a perpetual state of hope. A perpetual state of hope. You know, I love that as a church today, you know, global body of Christ, we have a value for authenticity. And we love authenticity, yes? It means you get to be real, you get to be raw, and all that good stuff. Authenticity is not a permission to live outside of who you are to be. It's not a permission to live outside of your God-given identity. We must understand that, yes, we have personality types, yes, we have certain inclinations, yes, we have certain likes and dislikes. But at the core of who we are, okay, our identity is that of a son and daughter of God. What does that imply? It means that true authenticity, authenticity or the highest level of authenticity is to be who you are called and meant to be. Not just functioning out of a personality type. And making sense. Oftentimes we give more, we pay more attention to these personality tests to define our identity rather than looking at the word of God and God's voice to define who we are. Am I making sense? Yes. In the Garden of Eden, you know, I, I, I want to pull up that story in Genesis 3. You know, we are all familiar with this story and Adam and Eve had, had, uh, were, were tempted by the serpent. And this is what the serpent said to Eve. He, she said this in his temptation. He said, you will surely not die, speaking of her eating the fruit. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil in the garden essentially questions two attributes of God in that interaction. He questions the goodness of God and God's power, both in the, in, in, uh, at the same time in that interaction. The power of God tells us that he's able to bring things to pass. The goodness of God tells us that he only brings good things into our lives. And catch this interaction. You will certainly not die. The serpent was saying to the woman that God doesn't have the power to kill. God, God won't kill you. He questions the power, power of God in that interaction. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan was implying that God would withhold good things from Adam and Eve. In that interaction, he questions the power of God and the goodness of God. Now catch this. We are susceptible to falling away, to be in doubt when we are unconvinced of the power and the goodness of God. 
the manifestation of a person who is utterly convinced of God's power and goodness is that of hope. Because hope is this, it's the confident expectation of good. It says this, that God is good, therefore he will bring good things into my life. And God is powerful, therefore he is able to bring good things into my life. Without being convinced of the goodness of God and the power of God, we are void of hope. Am I making sense? And I think hope and joy are the same side, uh, two sides of the same coin. Joy is that confident assurance. And in closing, I'd like to share with you three characteristics of hope. And I believe that we are called as believers to model these three characteristics you know, in our lives, but also in our service. I believe God has called our church to be a place of great hope, of great joy. And in so bringing hope to the world. First characteristic of hope. I believe hope celebrates with confidence. Hope celebrates with confidence. In Nehemiah 8, you know, that same uh, passage of scripture, let's have that up, Nehemiah 8. After you know, they, they were given that command to eat the fat, drink the sweet, it says this in verse 12, Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. I'd like to suggest to you that for the believer, rejoicing does not begin at the end of a circumstance. Rejoicing begins when we understand the words that have been spoken to us. There's this passage of scripture you know, that we are familiar with in the Bible. It goes, nothing, for nothing is impossible with God. It's in Luke chapter 1, verse 37. And I, I love uh, breaking down certain verses in its uh, original text. And it's interesting that the word Nothing translates to two words. Two words, it means no thing, and it breaks down to the words no rima. And the word rima, we understand it as the freshly spoken word of God. It's the word of God. And the word impossible, it means to be without power. Let's look at the passage of scripture again. For nothing is impossible with God. For no thing is impossible with God. For no rima is without power. For no freshly spoken word of God is without power. Catch this. For no rima is without power. We have to understand that when God speaks a thing, it will be established. When he declared a thing, it, it is not, no longer an option or a thing that might happen. It will happen. He spoke the world's into existence. The same power that created heavens and the earth is the same power, the same voice that speaks over your life and mine, your circumstance and my circumstance. When do we begin to rejoice? When the word has been spoken. Because when the word is spoken, it will happen. I'm making sense. The basis of hope is recognizing that when God has decreed a thing, it will be Establish. Am I making sense? Yes. Hope celebrates with confidence. Celebrates with confidence. You know, I love this story. You know, one of uh, the most uh, beautiful sights I got to see in my life. You know, I, I, I was praying for a girl. She uh, was in a a cast. It was one of those boot casts with uh, Velcro on it. And uh, she was a ballet dancer. And she got up and uh, she had broke broken her, her her ankle. And we were praying for her. And uh, as we were done praying for her, you know, we were expecting her to just, you know, just go home and 
hopefully you'll recover over time and bless the Lord, oh my soul. Um, but she then gets up and she begins to uh, tear out the, the Velcro in the boot and she begins to take it out. And we, we, we started stopping. We were like, hey, what, what are you doing? You, know, you shouldn't do that. I should just wait, rest, and uh, go, go back home and see if there, there are any improvements. And she, she gets up and she's like, you know, I, I believe that God has healed me. I want to begin to dance in faith. And so she takes off her boot and she starts uh, dancing. And we, we, we saw that she was just you know, in, in pain as she began to do so. You know, and we were trying to stop her, but she just refused. You know, and so she started doing her ballet thing, you know, things that I wouldn't even be able to do you know, in my fittest condition. And so she, she started doing all these things. You know, and and I, I can't even describe to you, begin to describe to you, but what I saw before my eyes was as she began to celebrate and dance in, with confidence, the pain began to subside, like step after step after step after step, until there was no more pain left. Hope celebrates with confidence. Celebrates with confidence. It believes that when God has decreed and declared a thing, it will be established. The gap time between God's declared word and the fulfillment of that word is faith. Am I making sense? Yeah. Next characteristic of hope. Hope reinterprets a circumstance. It does. It reinterprets a circumstance. Catch this. Hope does not deny the existence of a problem. It denies it a place of influence. It's almost defined. It does not allow its carrier to be defined by the circumstances around him or her. Catch this, you know, God shows up as the cloud in the sunny day you know, when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. And he shows up as a fire in the dark, cold night. He specializes in showing up opposite to circumstances. You know, when I was doing missions to Haiti, we chanced upon a, a girl, uh, she was a pastor's daughter, and she was, uh, she was blind. She was completely blind, you know, uh, and it was in, in a state where her eyes were rolled back and could only see the whites. And we uh, spent some time with her and we started talking and uh, asking her like, what happened. And uh, she then recounted this story where she was walking out about in town and she encountered a witch doctor and the witch doctor touched her eyes. And, and from that point on, she couldn't see. And so she was at that point blind for some three, four months now. And we were around her. We started to pray for her. And as we prayed for her, you know, um, uh, people started gathering, and these people gathered because they know of her circumstance. They know that she's been blind for three to four months now. She couldn't see, and they know of her suffering. And they gathered, and it was a crowd of about 50 or 60 people. And we're going to pray for her, and we spent a good 10, 15 minutes praying for her. And at the end of the 15 minutes of prayer, her eyes begin to roll back slowly, and then all of a sudden, she got a sight back. She got a sight back. After that thing happened, there was a massive uproar. People started cheering and said, oh my gosh, she, she got a sight back. And uh, one of my friends got up and began to preach the gospel and a bunch of people got saved uh, because they witnessed the power of God. What is my suggestion to you? Hope reinterprets the circumstance. It sees circumstances as a stage for God's sovereign intervention. That means whenever I encounter hardship and circumstance, it is an opportunity to see the activities of God. There is no testimony without a test, no victory without a battle, and no miracle without an impossible circumstance. 
you will only come face to face with the nature of God. Him as healer, provider, deliverer, comforter, in the midst of lack and hardship. Hope reinterprets the circumstance. It sees it as an opportunity rather than an obstacle. I was spending some time with, with a, a friend and he was going through some hard stuff and he, was just, he posed me this question. He says this, uh, Andre, you know, I, I don't know whether I would ever be free from temptation in my life. He just asked me that. He's like, you know, what is the goal in the world? Do I pursue a life without temptation? I've, I've done this Christian thing for so long, but I'm always tempted. I'm always facing temptations continually. You know, as I've been upon that, I realized that Jesus himself was tempted to the very end. To the very end of his life, he was tempted. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way. Here's how I view temptations. I view temptations not as something that breaks you, but something that forms you. Every temptation, if you view it through the right lens and perspective, it sets itself up as an opportunity for you to reaffirm your faith, allegiance, and love to the Lord. Instead of feeling like a horrible person when you are tempted, view those temptations as opportunities for you to further affirm your faith, your love for the Lord. They're not there to break you. They're there to form you. Hope reinterprets a circumstance. That making sense? That's why James says in James 1-2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Count it all joy. The last point, I believe hope leaves a legacy. You now I'm sharing a bunch of stories, but no, I love stories because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And when we celebrate and when we talk about the goodness of God, it prophesies into every situation. Amen? How many of you gave glory to God when I shared about Kelvin's story? How many of you did it? Yes. How many of you know that God wouldn't have received that glory unless the story was shared? That's why we have a culture of celebrating testimony, of recounting the goodness of God. When God does something good in your life, you have to talk about it. That's how you know, the gospel was preached. They were witnesses. They were witnesses to the goodness of God. And they recounted these stories and people got saved. When we choose to withhold from people the stories of God's goodness from our life, we rob God of the glory that's due His name. That making sense? Hope leaves a legacy. You know, um, the first uh, healing I ever saw in my life, you know, I prayed for a man. You know, he had this condition for some 37 years. Uh, he uh, came into uh, the prayer room and he was uh, he had herniated discs all through his back. You know, and uh, we typically uh, begin the prayer by asking him like, "What's the pain level and where you're at?" And he said that I'm I'm at a 10, 10 out of 10. He's in horrific pain and has been that way for 37 years and what would happen is whenever he tried to bend over his whole back would seize up and freeze up and it would lock him in that position and he would have to be taken into hospital they'll have to give him multiple jabs to his back to loosen up the muscles so that he could stand up straight again but even when he's up straight he was in perpetual pain and he had that pain for 37 years 10 out of 10, and he shared with me that he wanted to kill himself multiple times. He had to be restricted to his bed. His children had to hold him down, and he just wanted to die. And he was at a point of sheer hopelessness, you know, but still believing that God would do something. You know. And so he came into uh, 
uh, that room uh, with his daughter, and his daughter was a, a teenage girl. And uh, a bunch of us gathered around him and started praying for him. And as he, as he prayed for him, all of a sudden, his back got really hot, really, really hot, and he started sweating. And, uh, and all of a sudden, oh, he just broke free of that prayer. He just jumped out, and he's like, there's no more pain, and he started bending forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards. And he got healed instantly, without pain. 37 years of being held in that, that uh, infirmity. Amazing. But what, like, totally, for lack of a better word, destroyed me in that moment was when I saw the, fa- uh, the, the man we were praying for, the father, turning to his daughter, and both of them, when their eyes met, started weeping uncontrollably. And that moment I realized that hope leaves a legacy. What do I mean by that? For the rest of the daughter, his daughter's life, and by extension, the family line, they would have this story to look to. That God did something in the life of this man. 37 years of pain. It leaves a legacy. His hope, his perseverance, his that resolute faith to hold on to God, to hold on to hope despite of unchanging circumstance, it leaves a legacy for his children and his children's children. Hope leaves a legacy. It impacts people around you. In the kingdom, victory is not always the change in circumstance, but victory sometimes looks like the willingness to pray again in spite of unchanging circumstance. The Bible says this, that through faith and patience, we inherit the promises of God. Patience can be translated to mean staying power or staying true to cause. When we choose hope, when we choose joy consistently and continually, we inherit the promises of God. Joy is not always a feeling of euphoria, ecstasy of happiness. Joy is an internal decision that you make. It's an internal state of reality, internal reality that you hold on to that says that God is able and He wills because He is all-powerful and is fully good. He has done it before. He will surely do it again. You know, in crisis and hardship, you know, it's... It really is really easy, you know. I, I mean, we've all been through our share of pain and hardship, you know, and it's true. You know, all of us, I know this isn't the most affirming statement, all of us at some point in our lives will experience loss, pain, and hardship. It's true. Oftentimes, it's in those, those moments that, you know, we in some way abandon joy, we abandon all these things, you know, and we almost approach it in a manner that our hardship gives us permission to abandon joy. But I'd like to suggest to you uh, something that's different. What if you use your hardship, your pain, your circumstance as a platform for you to declare the goodness, joy, the delight of the Lord in spite of unfavorable circumstance in spite of unchanging circumstance. What if you use that moment to hope and in doing so, you inspire hope in other people going through difficult situations and circumstances? What if you make a decision to choose joy so that others will find hope and joy in their circumstance? Because many times we, we look at it this way, you know, when I don't feel happy, when I don't feel joyful, I'm, I'm going to make it so that the people around me are without joy and happiness as well. 
it might look like a snarky comment. It might look like sarcasm. It might put like a, look like a long face. But what you're essentially doing, I know, sometimes it's, it's tough. I get it, it's tough. But if you do it prolong, uh, for a long time, what you're essentially saying is that because I am not happy and without joy, I am withholding permission from other people to experience happiness and joy as well. I'm going to on purpose sabotage the joy and happiness of other people. And what I'm saying to you is that your circumstance, your hardship, though valid, can really become an, a stage, an opportunity, a platform for you to still choose hope and joy and inspire the lives of other people. This is what we're called to do as a church. We're called to be joyful you know, at all times, to rejoice, always to rejoice evermore. Yeah. The city, the church, is called to be a place where people find hope and joy once again. Amen? Amen? So what does it mean to celebrate your confidence? It means that we celebrate even before the breakthrough happens. What does it mean to reinterpret circumstance? It means that we are no longer impressed by the opposition. Rather, we recognize that it sets the stage for God's sovereign intervention. What does it mean to be hopeful to leave a legacy? It means that we recognize that how we react in a circumstance can affect the people around us. Our decision to choose joy can pull a person out of their pit. In the kingdom, every year is the year of jubilee. Every day, the day of gladness. And every hour is happy hour. Yeah. Okay, stand. <laughs> amen, amen. Do we have joyful people in the house? That's yeah, awesome. That's yeah, awesome. You know, I, I, I read this story recently about uh, a man named Charles Spurgeon. He was a, was a really famous preacher. You know? they, they would affectionately refer, him, refer to him as a prince of preachers. And they, he shared this story of how um, whenever, he, on every Sunday when he walked to church, he would walk past a bakery. And when he walked past a bakery, he would make it a point to smile at the people, uh, the, the, the family that runs the bakery. And so he would smile at them. And he would do that for several months. You know, he would... Uh, walk over and he would smile and wave and then he would walk to church um, he did that consistently for a couple of months and uh, one day he walked really close to the window and the family saw that he had a bible in his head so the family was like hey smart, uh, they're like hey you know you you have a you have a bible are you a, a minister they're like oh yes I'm a minister I'm going to church right now and the family was like oh I, I would love to go to church with you and he brought the, the family to the church and they got saved uh, in, that, in that very meeting. Charles Spurgeon will go on to say that you know, it, it, all it takes sometimes it's, it's a smile. It's a decision to choose joy you know, even when the circumstances are tough, even when things are not favorable, even when things are hard. You choose joy because you never know how your joy can impact, can touch the life of someone else. Joy is not a feeling. It's a state of being. And at times it looks like choosing to be present for someone else. Am I making sense? So as we close, I want you to close our eyes and bow our heads and I'm going to give a, a real simple uh, invitation. You know, and it, 
here this morning that you struggle with uh, embracing joy, you know, things might not be going really well, you're facing some impossibilities at home and a struggle with finding joy and hope in your life and you struggle uh, to be present for other people, you struggle to have a overall biblical optimistic view of life. I want to pray for you this morning. I believe that the Holy Spirit is here and He will infuse hope and joy into your situation, into your life. So with every eye closed, every head bowed, if that is you this morning, you are going through some hard stuff and you find it really hard to maintain joy and hope in a circumstance, I would love to pray for you. If that is you, just lift up your hands and I'll pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, recognize that you are the God of hope. You are the God of hope. In you, we can hope. Lord, we thank you that you never lived in reaction to the devil or to circumstance. You lived in response to the Father. Lord, we ask that today you will help us live life the same way, that we will no longer be impressed by the magnitude of the circumstance, but we will be captured in awe, in wonder, in beauty by the bigness of our God. Lord, I ask that in this moment you will infuse hope, joy into every person. Give them the faith, the resolve to stand firm even in the midst of circumstance, even in the midst of pain or hardship. And Lord, we ask for your breakthrough to invade every impossibility in the name of Jesus. Lord, I speak to every need, to every lack that is represented in this space and I call for the Holy Spirit. I send forth the word right now, Lord, to bring about deliverance, to bring about breakthrough, to bring about provision, to bring about healing where sickness is concerned, to bring about a miraculous work in impossibilities. And Lord, we ask that let our circumstances set the stage for your intervention. Let our circumstances set the stage for you to review yourself in glory. God, we ask that you'll do such a miraculous work. We love you. We honor you. We give you all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.